0: So t- this morning we're going to look particularly at verses, chapter 5 verses 1 to 12. Um, if you want to know more about the end of chapter 4, you can ask me afterwards and I'll tell you a, a sort of summary. Um, but I didn't want to keep us here all morning. So freedom. What do you think of when um, you hear the word freedom? Um, do you think of maybe like the Martin Luther King kind of idea? So he dreamed of social and political freedom um, part of his the end of his famous um, I Have a Dream speech, when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Or the kind of freedom, that sort of freedom, political democratic freedom, people have been willing to give up their life for it, um, Nelson Mandela said uh, before he went to prison said i have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all people will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities it's an ideal for which i hope to live for and, be, and to see realized but my lord if it needs to be it's an ideal for which i'm prepared to die so that's kind of sort of newsy sort of democratic kind of freedom but we have um, freedom in our own national anthem, don't we? I- I'm Australian, by the way, you probably notice. Um, <laughs> when I say "we. Um, Australians all let us rejoice, for we are yeah. free. free. Do you feel free this morning? I mean, what does that even mean? So uh, for our culture, I think generally, people, when people hear freedom, they think of being able to decide who you are and then being allowed to express that idea however you like, with no restraint. Um, there was a song when I was growing up in the 90s and it had these words, the Soup Dragons, I'm free to do whatever I want, to be what I want any old time, and I'm free to be who I choose, to get my booze any old time. I think that's the kind of freedom you're, most people think about. But what the Bible tells us and what our experience tells us is that that kind of freedom is really no freedom at all because it hurts others and it hurts ourselves and it never delivers the satisfaction it promises that kind of freedom is mocked by the very fact that the more you throw yourself into doing whatever you want however you choose the less free that you feel so chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The kind of freedom Paul is talking about here is a, is a deeper core of your being, forever freedom. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from guilt and fear, freedom from fear of judgment. Because Jesus has paid the price, taken the punishment we deserve and giving us his perfect record. Freedom from trying to earn our way to God by keeping rules or doing enough good stuff. Uh, Freedom from trying to just tip the balance of good deeds more than bad deeds by just enough. Freedom from trying to find meaning and purpose in making our own life. Free instead to live out the life that Jesus has already given us by his spirit. Free to do good works in thankful response for God adopting us as his children by grace. Not, um, not as the works of a slave trying to please his master. So freedom. Just uh, to get you to speed, if it, um, we're uh, getting towards the end of this series in Galatians. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul is writing to a church plant, like like us, a newish church. And they've all started strong, but they've come under the influence of, of teachers claiming to be the real deal, telling them that they need to keep bits of the Jewish law, particularly the identifying mark of the blokes getting circumcised. Or else, these guys are teaching, you're not saved. You're not safe as one of God's people. The the law, these laws that these guys are on about were we're an important part of, had been an important part of being God's people, Israel. But now, those laws have been fulfilled by Jesus. See, the law was really good at, at teaching us just how far from God we are. And its aim was to show us that our only chance is to have faith in God's promise to save us, to be saved by faith. Now Jesus has fulfilled that promise. Transferring our trust to him is all that's needed. Not keeping these rules of the law. He's freed us. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So how do we get this freedom? And how do we live a life free in Christ? That's what we're looking at this morning. So there's an outline in your leaflet. Uh, very simple. We'll spend most of the time looking at the only thing that counts up to verse seven, chapter 5, verse, seven, uh, verse 6. And then from 7 onwards, we'll look at um, some of these slave-driving bad teachers. So, here's the headline, the summary. And if you don't remember anything else this morning, remember verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love see when we come face to face with God to give an account of ourselves and all of us will all that counts in the end is faith in Jesus no matter how many laws or rules we kept no matter how good we think we've been even the best of us will be found wanting even by our own standards will be found, wanting, never mind by God's perfect, holy, loving standards. And in the light of God's goodness and love, our darkness will seem filthy. But if our trust is in Jesus, he will stand before us perfectly clean, and it's his perfect record that God will see on our behalf. That's why verse one, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul's urging the Galatians to stand firm. See, they'd, they'd already got this. They believed this. They'd thrown their lot in with Jesus, trusted him and him alone to save them. But now they were in danger of letting go of that assurance and burdening themselves with the slavery of following Jew- Jewish laws and customs. The very laws and customs which were meant to point them To their need for the thing that they already had. Salvation by faith. So verse 2, Paul gets as serious as he can in print. Mark my words. It's like when your your mum or your teacher uses your full name. You know, Colin James Taylor. You know you're in trouble. You know you better pay attention. And Paul here gives us three warnings about trying to save ourselves by following rules. So here's the first. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So if you or I try to say we need something other than Jesus to be saved, then we won't be saved by Jesus. That's pretty terrifying, isn't it? I mean, I reckon each of us here today could think of a time when we felt like we needed to do something a bit more to please God, a bit more to get saved. Does that mean we've lost our salvation? Are we in danger of, of losing our salvation by slipping up along the way? Because, I mean, this is just one of many warnings in the Bible, isn't it? We have lots of verses about being assured of our salvation forever, but lots of warnings about keeping running the race, not falling away. Can we lose our salvation? Well, it says there, doesn't it? If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. So it is possible. Yet, if you are truly saved. You definitely won't fall away if you're truly saved you definitely won't fall away you'll heed the warnings and in the overall bigger picture of your life keep standing firm so warnings like this are a bit like this warning sign so this was when i growing up we went to a caravan in wales for our holidays and across the road was this cliff and, you know, six or seven years old, mum and dad let us walk up to the top of this cliff and we'd dare each other to walk around the back of that sign. But none of us ever fell off. And this sign helped make sure that we didn't. We didn't, people didn't just wander aimlessly. The sign was part of the way we didn't fall off the cliff. Warnings like this one in the Bible are one of the ways God makes sure that our salvation is assured, that we keep our faith in Jesus. So we can have confidence. You can have the same confidence for yourself that Paul had for these very Galatians that he's having a go at. If you look at verse 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. So Paul's warning them, but he's confident that they're going to be all right. Now circumcision. Just an aside, if you are a Christian man here today and you are circumcised, you are still okay. You're still saved. So, ver- verse six. I'm desperately trying not to look anyone in the eye. So, anyway. <laughs> look at verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. You know, people do still get circumcised for health or cultural or aesthetic reasons, but it's kind of whatever. Paul says, circumcision itself is neither here nor there. It really, really doesn't matter. Now, what's important, what Paul's on about is being circumcised in order to be saved. That's what's wrong. That's the big deal. So, making something you do or something you have done as being essential to you getting into heaven, that's what's wrong. So warning number one, trusting in your own works to be saved makes Jesus of no value to you. Warning number two, in verse three, the gist of that is that circumcision, if you want to go down the road of keeping the law, circumcision is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole load of other obligations and customs for you to be enslaved by, trying to follow the law. So as fixes go, it's not a quick fix. And if you want to be saved by obeying it, you have to obey the whole kit and caboodle and only Jesus has done that uh, warning number three have a look at verse four trying to be justified by the law justified um, means being declared innocent by God trying to be justified by the law isn't just saying look Christ is great but here's some extra goodness that's needed um, to try salvation by works is actually to alienate yourself from Jesus. It's like um, putting a, a red sock in, in the wash, in a whitewash. It ruins everything. It takes away grace. It denies grace. It's not a neutral thing. It's rejecting grace, saying that you don't need it. Trying to be saved by works is like standing before God and stepping out from behind Jesus saying, "Sorry, Jesus, I've got this." Mm-hmm. Um, trying to be saved by works is doing what Dave here has done. I don't know if you can see this. Somebody's put, "Jesus, no name height is higher." <laughs> Dave's <laughs> coming after. <laughs> trying to be saved by works. Don't be Dave." This is how Christianity is different from every other religion or worldview in the world. Every other way is about what we do, about earning enough, doing enough to earn our way to good karma or enlightenment or a better reincarnation or whatever it is, getting in the good books. Even if you're a committed atheist, um, I reckon you want your legacy, your impact on the world to be on balance more good than bad. Jesus says, I've done all that for you. Not only have I done all the good you need for you, I've dealt with all the bad that you've ever done or ever will do. And I've rescued you into an eternity of unimaginable peace and laughter and good times with God in perfect love forever. That's the freedom we all need. And to get it, Jesus says, all you need to do is admit that you need it and trust in him to give it to you. That's the hope we have. Uh, look at verse 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Um, hope in the Bible isn't a kind of, oh, I really hope that happens. not kind of wishful thinking. Hope means to be certain of something, to know it's definitely going to happen. So when I come to trust and believe in Jesus, God declares over me in the present his verdict from the future, last day of judgment. And that verdict is innocent, right with God, adopted as his child. And as I trust in Jesus, because of Jesus' sacrifice, his Holy Spirit floods into the very essence of who I am and makes me alive, makes me new, a new, reborn person. Some um, people and cultures talk about having um, a, a totem or a spirit animal, don't they? You know, um, I asked my family what my spirit animal is and they said a naked mole rat. <laughs> Which is nice. I don't know where they go. It's such a horrible thing. But you know, we don't need a totem or a spirit animal. We don't need a guardian angel. We don't need a patron saint. We've got God's Holy Spirit in us, He unites us to Jesus. He makes it so that we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. It's such a close-linked, unified thing that we can't explain it, but it's a real, genuine link. And because of that, because we are declared justified in the here and now, we can look forward with confidence to receiving that righteousness in full when we're with God in eternity, where, where sin, sin is not present and sin's not possible. Looking forward, so it's a bit like um, Christmas. This is us a couple of Christmases ago with some friends. I, I grew up with five sisters and a brother with all the chaos and conflicts that goes with that. So you can imagine Christmas Day. But well, Chris, Christmas Day was always lovely, actually. We were all really nice to each other. Not to follow the being nice rule. But because we just felt good in our hearts, um, because we knew we had come in a great day of fun and gifts and food that we were all going to enjoy, uh, our confidence in looking ahead to the future—that—that that helps us in the here and now. Stop tra- tying ourselves up in knots, in slavery to a load of rules, trying to win that righteousness. So this is the the, the kind of faith that is the only thing that counts, faith expressing itself through love. Now a quick aside, an objection to being saved by faith alone. An objection to that has always been, well isn't that just saying like you can say you got faith in Jesus then just go and do whatever you want? Well no. See, that is again to mistake doing whatever you want for freedom. Now, our faith comes through the Holy Spirit and he rewires us for our new life of freedom. See, left to our own devices, uh, what our hearts want to do is reject God and serve ourselves, do whatever we want. But God enables us to believe in Jesus through his Spirit and his Spirit comes to live in us, to help us live out, good works of love so good works doing the right thing is the genuine fruit of genuine faith see usually slowly and but surely sometimes miraculously quickly god changes our hearts to be more like what they will be in eternity longing only to please and glorify him hating sin so the Holy Spirit changes us to want true freedom and reject false freedom. Well, this message of being saved by faith alone, it's, the trouble with it is, the reason it's been opposed so much over the years is it feels too good to be true for many. So we're always going to need to be on our guard against slave drivers. Slave drivers. That's our next heading. Let's assume, right, the Galatian Christians—they're not gullible, they're not stupid. Let's assume they're just like us, part of a new church plant that's been begun with the message of being saved by grace alone, by faith in Jesus alone. So, how have they been deceived? Or, well, as Paul puts it in a, an athletics race racing metaphor, verse seven. You were running a good race. Who's cutting on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Let's just very briefly look at some, some features that just help us to recognize it if we see it. All right, so verse 7. Um, th- they've preyed on Christians who have started well. So not people who are oh, a bit wobbly. They've preyed on Christians who have started well. Verse 8, they are persuasive. So trying to persuade in and of itself is not wrong, that's what I'm trying to do when I preach here. That's what evangelism is, it's trying to persuade people about Jesus. But their kind of persuasion is not from God. So just because an argument is persuasive doesn't mean it's true, we need to check it against scripture. Um, Jump ahead to verse 12, Uh, Paul calls them agitators. See, they're really annoying. They're causing trouble over and over. They won't let it lie. Now look, it's part for the course in any church for us to disagree on occasion about a way forward or how to do something. But the norm is to go through that seeking unity in the gospel, sorting it out peacefully and moving on. But the false teachers, their product is faulty. It's not really inherently good. So the only way to make it stick is to be so annoying that it's just easier to accept what they say so, they, so you go along with them. So that's why the command in verse 1 is stand firm. Verse 9. False teaching isn't a minor thing because it affects the whole church. Just as a little yeast in dough doesn't affect just a part of it but the whole it's the same, this is the same metaphor Jesus used about the Pharisees' teaching. That's why we need to take it seriously. We mustn't have this uh, a sentimental view of teaching Christianity where we say, oh, well, we need to hear all points of view. No, if we know it's not true, cut it out. Uh, finally, verse 11, the telltale sign of any false religion or any worldview or any teaching Is that they're offended by grace offended by grace so if you've poured yourself into staking your claim in eternity by the things you do the message that well that's all very good but it's not going to save you is really offensive but the truth is none of us ever had enough about us to claim that stake in eternity. Um, in one of my old jobs in the U.K., I had to assess the emotional impact of people's jobs to match them up to a pay scale, And I was interviewing some guys who worked in the research department of the hospital and asked them what was the most confronting thing they had to do. Part of their job was to help bring um, research done in the hospital to market, you know, patent it and all that kind of thing. And they said it was really common for them to come across people who had invested years of their life, hours and hours researching, pouring their expertise into an invention or a development, only to find that when they came to apply for a patent for it, to pay back all that lost hours and toil, the intellectual property didn't belong to them. Because their research was based on their job, it belonged to the hospital. And the patent was never their claim to stake, stake to claim. Our salvation was never our stake to claim. And that's a hard pill for many to swallow. See, the idea that you are a, a rebellious sinner who should stand condemned, that's pretty insulting, isn't it? But the gospel is at the same time as it's stripping us of our pride, of our self-deception, that we're okay because we're not as bad as Hitler. At the same time as being stripped of our pride, the gospel also strips us of our fear as we see how much God loves us in Jesus, giving his life up for us so we don't stand condemned. Condemned. All right, to finish, I've got three uh, ways to apply what we've thought about today. First, stand firm. See, you didn't miss anything when you first came to believe. The gospel really is that simple. You really didn't have anything to bring to the table. And Jesus really has done it all. Don't let anyone tell you different. I think where we're most tempted to add our own works is when we're convicted of a sin. You know, but the Holy Spirit helps us to feel the weight of it as we're being changed into Christ's likeness And we can be tempted to overcompensate, to not just to confess our sin to God, but to try and make up for it. And of course, it's, it's good to go on and do good and grow in our holiness, but there is a step we mustn't miss and that's to throw ourselves on God's mercy and accept his grace. Accept the free gift that we really don't deserve. And then our increased holiness that we pray will follow isn't for our sake, but for his. And it's not to earn our way to him. It's a free thanks offering, guilt-free. So stand firm. Secondly, be warned we'll always have people telling us that Jesus isn't enough. Because it's really attractive to try and win the race yourself. But it's dangerous. So it's okay to name error and refute it. And we must do that, in fact, because what we're doing is stopping people being alienated from Jesus. It's life and death stuff. But this is not an excuse to go and be horrible to everyone. Uh, Our approach should be like Paul's. Those who, so if you notice with the Galatians themselves, for those deceived, he's gentle and caring and seeking to restore them. Straight down the line, but like a nice big brother. So chapter 4, verse 12, I plead. Verse 19, he calls them my dear children. Um, Verse 28, uh, brothers and sisters. Gentle and caring but his harshest language is reserved for those teaching the lies so verse 12 as for those agitators I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves now the Greek word for emasculate there is well it's exactly what you think it means now is that harsh is that being too harsh Well, where people spend their eternity is at stake. Whether they're alienated from Jesus or not is at stake. And not just individuals, but whole churches. So stand firm, be warned, and lastly, be free. So we said circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's neither here nor there, it doesn't matter. And for Christians, there's loads of things that are neither here nor there. Food, customs, observing holy days, clothing, music. Provided they aren't sinful, provided they glorify God, and aren't leading others to go against their conscience. And you read 1 Corinthians 10 about that. If your conventions around those things help you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, great. Great. But never claim that they are an essential for salvation. And never burden anyone else with what is essentially your quirks. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's true freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Please help us never to turn back to being a slave and trying to earn our way to salvation. Thank you that we are declared righteous right now. We have peace with you. We're adopted by you. Please defend us from false teaching. Please give us discernment to see it when we, when we hear it and to deal with it appropriately. Amen.